is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. This episode's brought to you by Artwork Archive. Artwork Archive is an online platform that makes it easy to manage all aspects of an art career. I know this firsthand because I actually use Artwork Archive to organize and manage my own business. Artwork Archive tracks your artwork, sales, shows, and contacts, automatically builds schedules, and sends you reminders so you're always one step ahead. And for a limited time, Beyond the Studio listeners get 20% off when you get started with their free trial at www.artworkarchive.com beyond. Start connecting with collectors, getting organized, and building your art career now. Today we are interviewing artist, activist, curator, and educator Karen Sinefru. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Would you mind just introducing yourself, the type of work that you're doing, and tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Let me start with a a little bit about my background. I grew up in East Oakland um, in the 1960s and I was probably about eight years old when I became very aware of the Black Panther Party. And I bring them up because I feel that they were very influential, even though you know I had very little interaction with them. The ways in which I did become aware of them in some ways was shaped by them without being consciously aware of it until much later. I think it is significant to the art project, The Black Woman is God. And what I mean by that is that I knew that they were in the community. I knew that there were, you know, slogans and posters. And I knew that they were doing a free breakfast program that was across the street from an elementary school that I attended. I I attended a Whittier Elementary School. And across the street was a Catholic school that opened up the cafeteria to these young Black people who, for me, you know, as an eight-year-old girl, I just thought were physically beautiful. And I wanted to know more about them. So I would leave my mom's home very early to have breakfast be served by them. Even though my mother cooked breakfast for me, I would leave early so I could find out, you know, who these people were. And when I think back on it now, um, particularly in Oakland, there's an organization called the People's Collective Party. And they do these breakfast celebrations um, throughout the year where they acknowledge individuals that contribute to the culture and the community of Oakland. And the last lunch they asked me to participate in, there were over 200 people that sat at this dinner table. And I realized that here I was again being served (laughs) by a collective of people that appreciated what individuals were doing in the community and also supporting them. So I had, I, I felt like by being served by the Black Panther Party, I had gone a full circle um, by being able to sit down with the People's Party Collective. And so um, I think, you know, Oakland has been very foundational, both very directly and indirectly in shaping my politics and ideas around creativity and the purpose of art and, and the community itself. So activism has has been in your blood from the beginning. (laughs) I think I was served it very early in my life, yes. Yeah, it's so amazing what a shared meal can do. And also just how from such an early age, that type of influence, those experiences that we have are so impactful and end up informing the work that we do much later in life. Was creativity a big part of your life then too? Would you consider yourself an artist at that point? Or is that something that kind of evolved into part of your identity later on? I came into art in my 30s, and I would say more like late 30s. 
CDs. But when I would inform people that, you know, I had, at, at that time I had only been creating for maybe a year or four years or five years, people were blown away. And I think it was because what I had come to understand about art and how you store it. And I think this is true for anybody who has creative tendencies. Everybody has creative tendencies. But if you find yourself drawn to artists, it's because there's some desire yourself to create. You may not know how to create. You may not know why you desire to create. And you may not know who are the artists that can influence your creativity. But there's something that's pulling you that needs to happen out outside of the body. So for me, the first way in which I had been creating as an artist was by claiming my body. You know, I had shaved off my hair after, you know, I had a perm and shaved off my hair after reading Malcolm X's autobiography and understanding the the political impact of wearing a perm and the way in which that was shaping my concepts of beauty. When I shaved my mm-hmm. hair off, I became embraced by the African community in ways that I hadn't. And I, and I would say that people were speaking to me in a language which I had forgotten. And so I couldn't respond back. But, you know, at some point they would say, you know, they speak in, you know, an African tongue and then they would say Maasai, Maasai, right? And I said, okay, who are these people that they keep referring me to? Let me look them up, (laughs) find out who they are, you know, and looking through the photographs of this one particular book called just Maasai, I realized like, okay, these folks look like my father. They look like my family. This, This could be, you know, I could be related to these people. Wow. But that was a link you were unaware of up to that point. I was totally unaware of it. And it was, again, in claiming my bodies where the shift of moving from being in the community as a collective to recognizing that there was probably something much more important journey that I was going to take, but that it required me to connect to my culture to do that. And then eventually the culture connected me to the art. Can you expand on that a little more? Like how did that lead you into, I guess, claiming the identity of artist and developing a language to talk about your work and yourself in that way? Were you, did you have other artistic influences or mentors or were you starting to seek out inspiration from other artists? Or I'm interested like how that started to come into it and to play a bigger role in your own life. I think that I've always been drawn to language. I've been drawn to words. You know, that was always very fascinating for me. I mean, as a young person and, and going to public schools that weren't the best, that I always found myself interested in literature on some level or another. You know, I can remember very distinctly being at Oakland High School and and not really enjoying the English class until my instructor stood on the table and and just started uh, restating or phrasing some part of the literature. And then all of a sudden that literature became very active for me. And I, I remember very distinctly taking an art class and and really taking it because I just wanted something other than having to deal with the uh, academics of the school and having an, an art instructor drawing me and then asking me to stay after class to do that and being pulled in in that way, but still not seeing myself as an artist, just using that, that class and that time to deal with or to not have to think about the struggles and challenges of growing up in my family who have been impacted from the 1960s to the, I mean, to this present day by all of the various social constructs of the society. And so I needed that that class as a form of escapism, but not recognizing or seeing myself as an artist. But I always found myself in some kind of space. And and then as an adult, uh, returning back to school and eventually entering um, the University of UC Berkeley as an English major, which was not my intention at all, but somehow finding myself in that space and then being, you know, again, falling in love with language, falling in love with ideas, and then falling in love with a very good friend of mine, um, Robert Henry Johnson, who's a choreographer and poet and writer out of San Francisco, and who, who during that time that I was going to UC Berkeley was a was one of the darlings of the performing arts world. And then finding that he fell in love with Toni Morrison's text, and then seeing how his ability to choreograph and dance was so unique 
that even his dancers would freeze when he would show them a new move and they would admire him as a physically creative being as opposed to watching the steps and then the impact that that had on me because what that taught me to not fear the language not fear what I didn't know about the language or the structure of the language to just be creative in the language and then the form will come and he really shifted me in that way from you know a thinker of the language to writing it and then eventually moving from writing literature to claiming myself as an artist, which came later with my relationship with my husband, um, who was at the time, you know, my boyfriend, Malik Sinefru. When I initially met him, he called himself Malik Sinefru, the artist. (laughs) Yes. And I thought, oh my God, he's so arrogant. (laughs) And I said, Oh man, these men are always saying they're artists. And I I didn't think he was an artist. It didn't matter that he was an artist. What mattered to me was that he grew up in Bayview Hunters Point. He worked with young kids. He cared about those children. And I didn't see his artwork for three months. And then he laid before me his portfolio while I was mm-hmm. meeting his grandmother. I realized, wow, this guy is not only an artist, he's a genius. And this is just phenomenal. And it's really through him. Um, he was the first one that said, you are an artist. Usually people would ask me if I was an artist and just mm-hmm. the way in which I looked and the way in which I was claiming my body. But he actually said when he walked into my apartment that I lived in Berkeley, he said, you're an artist. And I said, why do you say that? He said, because just the way in which you're constructing everything around you it's a creative being. And um, I, I didn't believe him because I hadn't painted, sculpted, drawn. I hadn't done anything that I thought was connected to kind of traditional Western notions about being an artist. I had those ideas as well. And and it was through mm-hmm. him that I um, shifted, you know, what an artist can be, how an artist can function in the world. And then eventually taking on some of those tools and, and mediums as ways of communicating through language and establishing multiple narratives. I feel like it can be so hard to make that step where you do self-identify as an artist because we have all this this history presented before us saying this is what art looks like, this is how it's supposed to be made, these are the types of people that are allowed to be making art and allowed to be recognized for it. And when you recognize that like, no, I am a creator, I am an artist, it I don't know, I, I feel like it can be really freeing and also a little terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it it took me a moment. I would say, you know, I was physically creating for about two or three years before I actually climbed myself as an artist. And, you know, I, I can I can remember very distinctly, you know, people along my journey that helped me with that, you know, claim and, and, and the Arthur Wright was one of those artist. You know, he's just a phenomenal artist. He's probably 80 years old. He lives here in the Bay Area. And he paints these extraordinary pieces with using black paper and Clorox. And it's really pointillism on on black paper so that the figures appear as if they're in the universe, that they're made up of stars. And so he oftentimes, yeah, his work is just, um, just amazing. And there's no, as far as I know, there's, you know, I don't know anyone else that's using that particular medium. And he said, you're an artist. He just, like my husband did. My husband said, you're an artist. I said, he knighted me. The Arthur Wainwright said, you're an artist. And he knighted me. But then I would have to say too, was probably the most fundamental person that shifted and, and changed that space for me was Ray Louise Hayward, who created the Art of Living Black at the Richmond Art Center that still is there as an annual project, where I saw for the first time over a hundred Black artists. And I didn't realize how many of those artists lived in the Bay Area, how many of those artists were women. You know, this person, Ray Louise Hayward, was, you know, just sacrificing so much of her life and herself to make sure that this annual project happened. And, um, she saw one of my first pieces. You know, I started with these dolls, uh, these soft figuratives that I covered in black eyed peas and black beans and rice and beads. And really was playing around with the idea of what were the properties that were brought 
to the Americas through slavery? And then mm-hmm. how could I integrate organic and inorganic properties together to appear as if they're coexisting? And then what do these dolls represent? And so initially, these eight dolls that I created with feathers and all kinds of stuff, Ray Louise Hayward saw one day one of the dolls that was sitting on my husband's table at the convention center for the Art of Living Black. And she asked Malik, who did this work? And, and he said, oh, it's my wife's. And my husband said that she took the doll around. These are like 60 black artists that were in the Richmond Convention Center. And then um, at some point, um, PBS honored her. And so they did this commercial with her. And in the commercial, at the end of the video, my doll, she was holding my doll in her hand. Oh, that's awesome. Right? Isn't that incredible? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay, it's confirmed. I'm an artist. (laughs) You have arrived. <laughs> Ray Louise Hayward says that's I'm an artist. I okay, I agree. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I would love to ask you a little bit about your project, The Black Woman is God. Uh well, explain to our audience that doesn't know what that is, what that is, and uh like what are your your goals and your plans with this project? So the Black Woman is God sprung out of a conversation that I was having with a friend of mine who's also an artist and who is now the executive director, co-executive director at the African-American Art and Cultural Complex in San Francisco, Melora Green. She's also the co-curator of the exhibition. Um, we were talking at, at a concert or some kind, and, and she just posed this question like, you know, how is it that Black women can endure so much and overcome so much and struggle so much, and yet they have this kind of way of still being full and present and whole in the world. And I said, oh, well, you know why that is. <laughs> I don't even know. Like, I can't even believe, like, I just thought this thought on the fly like that. But I said, it's because the Black woman is God. And um, prior to that conversation, she had asked me if I would be willing to do a one-woman show, uh, my first one-woman show. And and I said, at, at the ACC. She was a co-curator. I mean, she was a curator. And at the time, London Breed, Mayor London Breed, was the executive director of that. Yeah. I mean, the universe is so amazing. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So she was the she was the executive director. And and, uh, Mayor London Breed had asked me to do a a one-woman show. And I said, no, I didn't think I was ready for that. And then Melora had asked me to do it as well. This is back in 2012. And I said, no, I don't think I, I don't think that that would be right because I know all of these Black women artists who are a part of the Our Living Black, who had created, who were veteran artists, but didn't have the same exposure that I was starting to gain um, very, very quickly and in a short period of time between creating artwork and then being pushed into the art world, people saying, would you bring your work here? So then I started creating art for the spaces as opposed to creating art for myself. And mm-hmm. and so I said, well, instead of having a one woman show, what, why don't we pull a number of these artists who I've become familiar with here in the Bay Area and have a show? And so we were, you know, we were contemplating on that. And so when I had this conversation with Melora and I said, the black woman, this guy, she said, that'll be the title of the show. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And so <laughs> it kind of emerged out of, you know, one, a desire to do what I thought was morally right for the community, mm-hmm. um, a way of affirming how women, black women particularly, have pushed past certain obstacles and still had a way of being creative, being political, being conscious, and struggling to be free. And so I wanted the exhibition, you know, to represent, you know, what I had come to know about Black women being one. Yeah, one of the reasons we were really excited to talk with you, Karen, is that it seems clear that it's such a priority for you in your own work and practice to highlight and to support and lift up other artists as a really core part of that. And I think that story is a really beautiful reminder for anyone listening that has an opportunity presented to them. The way that you use that to shift the focus around you and to view yourself as part of this larger community instead of just taking that on, which you could have really easily done and had a beautiful solo show, but to make a decision to instead 
spotlight other artists who you felt were equally deserving and should also have that opportunity. So just using that platform to create opportunities for others at whatever stage of your life or career you're at. Because I think too, as emerging artists, I often feel like there is no opportunity or I don't have enough opportunities coming my way myself to be able to do that, although I'd love to start to create platforms. But just to, I think, recognizing the ability that you have and the responsibility. So I just wanted to call that out because I, I love hearing that origin story of this project. No, thank you so much. And, you know, I think I think it comes out of losing family members. I've had to think about this for some time. You know, I'm the fifth of six and I lost all of my um, family, all of my siblings mm. above me and the youngest below me. The youngest died of AIDS. Oh, my God. And then the, uh, um, other, the other siblings, they, I had one sister just die a couple of years ago. It'll be two years this year. Oh, so sorry to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a part of the the struggle and challenge of being, you know, working middle class black people during a time where, you know, there's just a lot of social upheaval and the influences of crack cocaine um, in the 80s, the influences of heroin in the late 60s, yeah. the, the push um, for the Black Panther and black nationalism to, you know, push back against white supremacy and structural oppression through the federal government and um, local and, and state and local government. And so it took me going to UC Berkeley and being in the English department to understand the that I was going to the source of my family's destruction, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a certain kind of recognition. And then through the art world, understanding what it means when art is not a part of the curriculum, it also mm-hmm. means that culture is not a part of it, history is not a part of it, and then there becomes yeah. a dismantling of the entire community by ensuring you know, what kind of curriculum is created and developed. And so just having a recognition of those broader ideas that can relate to personal experience has created, at least for me, a desire for sisterhood that I didn't know existed until this year. Why is it? Well, you know, I'm, I love having these meetings with, you know, 25, 30 black women mm-hmm. around the project, around developing it, creating committees and all those things. And then I realized like, this is more than just work. This is sisterhood. I want to see what other black women can do through this project. And I want to see what I'm going to learn from them as they move forward and gather a certain level of responsibility and confidence and courage and creativity Um, And just recognizing that it's bigger than my own individual desire. I mean, eventually, in some ways, it it does turn back to me. The the spotlight does shine itself back on me because I am the founder of it and the co-curator of it. And the more that uh, Melora moves into the executive director position, I'm I'm starting to stand more and more in that light by myself. But at the same time, the project is bigger than me. When you bring more people into a project, you create bigger spaces for yourself simultaneously. It's just the nature of the growth of the project. And so it's really, you know, maintaining one's responsibility to the self and recognizing the self as a part of the collective. Yeah. And these artists that you were bringing into the project when it first started, were they artists that you already had some personal connection with? Or was it an opportunity to invite new artists in? Um, how did the project start to come together just in um, involving other collaborators? Well, it was a mix of people whose work I admired and that I didn't know personally, emerging artists like Sage Stargate, who's been one of the most important young artists um, in the Black Women is God, because of her ability to create these um, murals in a week, these, you know, 19 foot, you know, 20 foot murals inside some arts. But also people like Dana King, who have been a part um, the Bay Area's consciousness because she was a journalist for KPIX for about 25 years. So people had seen her every day on, on television. And then retiring, just coming in contact with her at an exhibition and recognizing that I had seen an episode with her talking about her artwork and seeing her paintings and um, just running into her and saying, hey, would you like to be a part of this exhibition? And she said, yeah, when she heard the title of the name. 
My gosh, I want to be in this. <laughs> yeah. You know, so the project gives me an opportunity to meet new artists, to bring emerging artists in, to bring in veteran artists who may be creating only for themselves because they don't feel like they have a space anymore to present their work. And then what's happening now is that we're reaching out to Luminary. So we, we had a chance to have artist Lane's work at Thelma Harris's gallery, uh, Tony Scott. These are Southern California artists. Also, Mary Lovelace O'Neill, who was the first Black professor to receive tenure at UC Berkeley's art department, who was also in the exhibition. So just bringing together a wide range of skill sets, um, experiences, relationships to the art world, bringing them all under the, the house of the Black Women's God, and then developing that project out so that now this year we were not just in so marsh gallery which held 50 black women artists works but we were also in betty ono's gallery in in oakland the triple acc where two exhibitions were happening on the black women's god one downstairs the other in the hall of culture that's curated by black men where we have luminary artists like joe sam charles bibbs the arthur right as well as bay area you know emerging black male artists so giving other artists opportunity to curate being in other spaces like a shark and dios gallery as well delma harris's gallery in oakland that's been around for over 25 years really setting the foundation for spaces for high art delma harris works holds the the work of charles white and Jacob Lawrence, you know, she has work at that work you would normally see in a museum. She opened up yeah. her space to to bring some of the artists from the Bay Area, um, Monica Shelton and Nicole Dixon, into her spaces with Artist Lane and Tony Scott. So the project is just, you know, expanding, you know, beyond my own expectations because other people are dreaming for me. And I think that's yeah. what happens. You dream for them and then they dream for you. Mm-hmm. Where do you see the project headed or what do you think it might evolve into? My, my biggest dream for the project is that it'll travel across the country um, and it'll go into you know places like uh, New York, Detroit, Chicago, Washington, D.C. Um, but then that it'll go across Europe and then it'll go back home to Africa and across the continent. That's that's my biggest my biggest dream is that it can you know this idea of the black woman as God, seeing the black woman as a deity is not unfamiliar to African cosmology. So being able to go back to the continent and then go back to the kind of traditional ways in which African culture celebrates and values the black female presence as a divine presence before the encounter of European colonization, seeing that art becomes one of those vehicles for that return back to the cultural ways. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the artists that are involved, network is expanding as the project takes on different forms. Is that accurate? Uh, rather than it being the same core group of artists as when it first started? Yeah, it's changing. There's some artists that have been with the project, you know, like Dana King since 2013. And Karen Turner has been with us in, in every exhibition. Awan Mance. It's really expanding and developing. You know, we've moved from visual arts uh, to performing arts. So we have about 75 performing artists that are dancers, singers, actors who participate in the Black Womanist God. So we're also saying that the body, in some ways, returning back to my initial relationship to art, which is that the body is the first place in which one claims itself and thus claims the artistic self through performance. It's expanding. We also have a number of uh, artists that are academics. So we're we're having discussions around what it what does it mean to be a black woman in the in the academic world and the artistic world. How do they intersect? How are they different? What are the challenges? And then what are some of the solutions to the challenges in those spaces? My other hope is that we'll move from the visual arts to literature and, and, and incorporate scholars and fiction writers and sci-fi writers. So I, I'm just interested in just building it out to to a festival. Yeah, it's exciting to hear how it seems like you're tying it into all these other aspects of your own identity and 
bringing this project together with all these other things that you've been involved in? Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about it like that until you said it. But yeah, it's like the, what, you know, what have been my interests, what's been my journey and how does the Black Woman's God become a kind of reflection or mirror of that journey? As an individual, I struggled a lot trying to claim myself. I guess in that sense, if I can create a space where other Black women artists don't have to struggle in that way that I did as an individual, as someone whose family was destroyed, as someone who was the first in their family to go to a university and have to figure out that structural challenge. I've done a lot of firsts. To me, that's not about saying, oh, well, I'm you know courageous and, and, and those kinds of things. It's about what that feels like to be in those spaces and how I, if, if possible, I don't want that for other people, if I can change that in any way. That's so that's such a beautiful point of view because I think it's so it's so easy to take our own personal successes and feel like it very much is our own but you take it as an opportunity to bring other people in and to have your opportunities become the opportunities for your community and I I really respect that a lot. <laughs> oh, thank you. And I, I think, you know, in that way, um, you know, I'm getting to the core principles of the Black Panther Party and these young people who were just very courageous and and dedicated and recognized that there needed to be some pushback against these struggles. And in some ways, you know, even with all the struggles I've had in my own personal life and with my family, I always felt like. You know, I was entering into spaces that um, others weren't. And I wasn't sure how I got there. <laughs> I didn't feel like it was just my own fuel that got me in those spaces. You know, I've had, I've been fortunate to exhibit at CAM, the California African American Museum, and through the suggestion of Milton Bowen. And then I was able to get into Skirball Museum with uh, Michelle Elizabeth Lee who was a curator at CAM and, and also a giant of an artist in her own right, who is a family member of um, Mary Lovelace O'Neill. So these circles start to spiral. Um, and I think that when the spirit is right in recognizing that you're being propelled in the world in a particular way that requires for you without question to open your heart up and to open your space up and open up your opportunities that that's not going to be a loss. That's actually going to be a gain. I just never had any doubt around that or I never questioned it or I never considered my age or, you know, like how, when I moved forward, I think that that's, that's really important. Even if you're afraid, as June Jordan said, be afraid, but still move forward. Yeah. I can't remember where I heard this or I don't know where I would have read this, but I remember reading or listening to this uh, description about as like something inherent to artists is that they have this ability to move uh, between different spaces and that their role is, there was some word for it that I, I can't remember, but it translated into something like border stalker. So someone who's able to move from like across these lines or these like divisions that you know, allow them to occupy different types of spaces and that the role as an artist is to use that ability to tie them together and to create these bridges. I feel like that's a little bit of what you're talking about. And I don't remember what the source of that was, but I, I always really liked that perspective of what it means to be an artist and how it just connects into your life is creating more connectivity by building these kind of metaphorical bridges between different types of spaces. I, I appreciate you saying that because what comes up for me is a quote that I've gained from entering spaces, you know, whether it's the classroom or it's a museum, what I've come to understand in, in those spaces that appear to be separate, but yet for me or intersectionalities, space dictates meaning. What enters that space is dictated to by the meaning of the space or the individual can change the meaning of the space. And so that's a quote that just kind of came to me one day when I was in my classroom. I was teaching, you know, these foundationals, you know, these, you know, what are considered quote unquote foundational students. But I was teaching them in a very advanced way around language and power and the importance of reading and um, gathering the structure as 
keys, as key holders to their future. And this quote came up and um, I had this young woman, um, Sunny Moore, who was my TA and, and also a very good friend who wrote, you know, I give thanks for her. She wrote that quote down because I was just talking off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> and then she, and what she started doing was like, I'm just going to catch your catchphrases. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's so good. That's why we started this as a podcast forum, because all the time we would be having these conversations and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, you just said something that is incredibly profound <laughs> and we need to stop and recognize that. Or you you say something yourself and you're like, I said that? This sage wisdom came from me? <laughs> I must have been possessed by by a wiser person briefly. <laughs> they come in, they step in when you least, you know, ex- expect it. And then they come out of your mouth or as, you know, I remember one of my professors saying, oh, you open your mouth and out drops a pearl. And so I'm like, okay, hmm, what does that mean? <laughs> Let me try to catch that. I appreciate these moments as well because, you know, you don't know, you know, what what's going to come out. You don't know what's what's guiding you. And, and, you know, I do believe in the unseen and I believe in, you know, ancestral spirits. And, and I do believe that, you know, going into the, these spaces that I've gone in where I was, the, you know, either the only black woman or the only black artist. And here I was in these spaces. And what was I going to do? How was I going to make what appeared to me to be empty space and shift that space, somehow make it ritual, recognizing that historically those spaces have been designed to dehumanize the black body? How can I both acknowledge that history and at the same time make that that space memorial, as, as Toni Morrison said, um, is important to the creative person to move outside of the academy and go into the public and create memorial with art. So I try to do that. And I try to engage that with, you know, those artists that are in the Black Womanist God that have a very strong African cosmological relationship to themselves and speak to that reality in their work so that you get someone like Colette Eloy, who's from Haiti and has been very instrumental in the last two years as performing art, bringing Haitian dance form and transforming the space of Soul Marts that it becomes not just an exhibition, not just a, a place to see artwork, but it becomes a place of transformation for those who get in the opportunity to be at the receptions when those moments happen. You know, she's at the center of the receptions and our Doctari's Dance Collective, who did the closing for the exhibition and then created ritual around that and then brought in one of the most important African-American scholars in the Bay Area, Vera Nobles, who's married to Dr. Wade Nobles. Both of them prominent figures within the African uh, scholarship participated in the dance performance. And that was a surprise to me. I had no idea that Vera Nobles was going to be a part of the dance performance. And she's also, she used to be a dancer and she's now wheelchair bound, but she was a part of the closing reception. The willingness to open oneself up to space means that there's a willingness, at least from the African cosmological perspective, that you are opening up the possibility for ancestors to come and commingle with you. And then that's going to change the performance to ritual. And then something different is going to happen for those who are there to bear witness. That's so interesting. It kind of reminds me of the idea of the the genius not being a person, but this sort of external source that everyone periodically will inhabit you and, and, and gift you with these ideas and these opportunities. And you kind of you either get it or you miss it. But I, I love that idea that we have this influence from those before us. There's, of course, a very obvious sense because we are living in the space that was previously lived in, but also kind of taking on the, the experiences of those before us and gaining knowledge from that and using that as we move forward into the world as well. Yeah. And I know that, you know, for some in the art world who have established, you know, very important places for themselves historically and financially, like Kerry James Marshall, he would argue, you know, you know, that's, that's a faulty way of thinking about the self as an artist, Mm -hmm. that you're a genius because you have studied your discipline, 
you have gathered the history, you recognize the trajectory of where you are in the space, and you are trying to close the gaps of how the art world has viewed black art, he says, either as ancient or contemporary, and then the space in between um, is not acknowledged or presented, which you know, which is certainly problematic. And as an artist, he said he was, he's trying very hard to enter into these museums to make sure that his work gets in some of the most important museum spaces in the world. And he's achieved (laughs) that. And he certainly, one of his most previous paintings was sold for $2 million at it. I think it was Sotheby's auction. So he so he would argue that his ancestors are Europeans, right? You know, like I'm choosing, I'm choosing my ancestors. Mm-hmm. They aren't, you know, necessarily culturally related. I don't, you know, believe in this invisible entity that's problematic. And I understand that he's in a particular kind of framework and that has afforded him a certain kind of access too. Mm-hmm. But I also recognize that as black women, we are on this journey um, in our own specified way, even though you know there's Carl Walker who's achieved a certain level of respect, acknowledgement, and recognition that in some ways pulls her from this idea of being perceived as a black artist and you know how that can create certain limitations. But then what does that mean if you have a room full of black women who say they are godlike beings and are connecting that, right? <laughs> to a a cultural reality it just we are just breaking all kinds of western cultural taboos yeah and we know that and who knows where that will take us but it's certainly taken us um i would say at least myself it's taken me further than i anticipated and uh, i think as i said before that when you start to dream for the community the community will start to dream for you and then that becomes a whole nother way of being in the world beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like already hearing all the things that we're going to pull as quotes. Like, <laughs> Look at this powerful chunk of wisdom It's going to knock your socks off. <laughs> I have a question that might be switching gears a little bit, but we've talked so much about the influence and the impact of this project. And since a part of the podcast is talking about just some of the logistics of making these things happen and how to get there, I'm curious how you've been finding support for the project to that end. And with having so many collaborators involved, is that sort of where the support comes from? Is it through some of the spaces that like gallery spaces or institutions that the project's been presented in that's offering support? Are you applying to grants or putting proposals out to make some of this happen? What's been the like that end of it like um, just in the, the practically putting it together? Yeah, well, it takes a lot of energy. It's, yeah. Oh, gosh, I wish I could remember the name of the artist that's doing this. Um, at least he had a couple of episodes on HBO and the um, show is called Random Acts of Flyness. <laughs> the title oh. is incredible. Awesome. Um, and, um, oh gosh, his name is escaping me. But he's an incredible visual artist, thinker, and just phenomenal being. And he talked about how to be an artist and to also work in this capitalist society, it requires you to be an entrepreneur. And to be an entrepreneur means that you're going to have to sacrifice. And that sacrifice also means that you're either going to have self-care or you're going to have no care. just thought and I had to play it a few times and I still don't quite get everything that he was saying around you know being an artist being an entrepreneur being a creative being having self-care having no care in some ways I'm experiencing all of that but not wanting to sacrifice myself up for um, the project because I do feel when I look at artists who were leads for groups in the Bay Area, they gave a lot of themselves. And, and, and I can tell some of those people are not with us. And some of those people still are, but are very disappointed with the outcome. And I don't want that for myself. I don't want that for this project. So it requires, you know, commitment from other people. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the three people who have been really fundamental to that commitment have been more Laura Green, 
co-curator, and then Ayana Davis, um, who's been, these people play multiple roles in Idris Hassan. So they're all artists, but they're all taking the lead with committees that sprung out of the Black Women's Guide. And, and we needed to develop committees because the project kept getting so big. You know, we went from 18 artists to 80 artists. Mm-hmm. It's a big jump. Big leap, right? And then I felt like the Black Women's Guide was like a giant baby that was running down the hill. <laughs> Sometimes I said it was either a giant baby or it was a ball. I couldn't tell if I was in front of it or behind it or on top of it. But none of those places felt safe. So one, it's like, you know, really strategizing around what is the project demanding of the artists who want to be in the project? And then to what extent are people going to be willing to give sweat equity to it in hopes that there'll be some funding along the way? And then mm-hmm. who, who's going to fund an exhibition called The Black Woman is God? <laughs> Right. I, yeah, that can be very problematic. I've been very grateful that Zellerbach Foundation helped this year and as well as Akhenati Foundation. Idris and I, who have taken on grant writing this year, if we had had more time or more people, we would have had more opportunity to get more funding. Part of it is definitely um, being able to multitask you know so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the artist i'm a curator i'm a grant writer now <laughs> um uh <laughs> and those are just some of the, the things that i can you know think of you know also mediator because when you bring in so many people you're going to have personal challenges political challenges cultural challenges you know belief differences so not being too moved by how people can get moved because the project is so big and it creates a lot of light and then folks come into that light and want to harness it for themselves and that under, that's understandable because of you know ego and people coming in for the wrong reasons so then you know there can be that challenge and, and just making sure that the project stays on course and then needing time to debrief about the project looking at what works looking at what doesn't work trusting in the vision is the biggest key trust in the vision the other part will come because other people will believe in that vision with you and then they'll direct you and they'll point you in the direction you need to go in and you also have to trust in that whatever you're creating the community wants i mean i had no idea of the impact that the project was going to have um, when it, when we showed at SoMars, it wasn't that SoMars initially wanted the project. They didn't want the project. I think that they were concerned about it, about the name and the politics that it might draw. And so there was some fighting and, and Melora worked really hard. Her name is escaping me, but Melora and this person, they fought to get the Black Women's God in SoMars as a residency separate from the residency that they have yearly um, because they thought it was an important project. And then at some point, it looked like we were going to have, oh, maybe, you know, I was like, okay, maybe we'll have 200 people show up. That'll be good. That'll be great. You know, 200 people. Mm-hmm. And then we were looking on Facebook where we had the invite and it, and um, there were, there were like 500 people who said they were going to show up and 800 people said that they were interested. Oh my God. Right. And then I went, oh, okay, so maybe we'll get about 500 people. <laughs> And then um, Alex, who was one of the uh, coordinate the movement of bodies in the space of somewhere, said, look, we're going to have to open up the other gallery because we'll probably have about 800 people that will come out. 800 people. What? Right. So I had to rethink or reframe my own expectations. And then... We ended up with over 2,000 people. Oh, my gosh. Came out. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> the opening, nobody was prepared for. The new executive director, Maria Jensen, who had, I think, been at MoMA for about 20, 25 years, she mm-hmm. came into Some Arts as the new executive director. She said, what is this? I've never seen anything like this. And I'm like, <laughs> me either. Like... That's like a really busy day at, so I actually work part-time at SFMOMA just on the front line, but so we know like how many people come into the museum every day. And that's, that's a really busy day for the museum as a whole, like seven floors of exhibits. So for 
Yeah, that's amazing to have that turnout. And that was breaking their capacity, you know. Yeah, yeah. like all the fire codes are broken. Yeah. <laughs> no one, I didn't know anyway. And so they said, okay, look, we have to be careful about the capacity. 1,600 people is what we can get in this place. Um, that, you know, without the fire marshal complaining. And so we made that capacity last year, and then we made that capacity this year as well. So Man. trusting in your vision, creating something new, not being afraid of the controversy or the politics it might create, because maybe mm-hmm. it's not going to create it. Maybe it's going to create a space that's welcoming, that people are mm-hmm. ready for. The Black community came out for the exhibition, but Everyone came out for the Black Woman is God because they wanted to, yeah. what is this? Isn't that amazing? I don't know who had said this, one of our past guests, I think, but it was just about not underestimating the power of your community. Oh, maybe it was Andrew Simonette um, we had talked to mm-hmm. uh, who had said that lead with the work that's most important to you and don't underestimate the need for it and that what you will often find is that there is a desire, there's a thirst for it and that if you will put it out there, you may be surprised that people are really you know, ready and hungry for it. Yeah, I agree. And I, and even, you know, after five years, I'm still surprised at the way in which people respond to it. Um, You know, there's the work of being in it, but then there's watching how the community responds to it and what their needs are and how they feel their needs are getting met through the project. And then, you know, really needing time You know, you also got to strategize about time to step back and see what's working, what's valuable, and also, you know, what you need to do to improve it. Um, Karen, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think would be important to talk about for this uh, podcast episode? Well, I think that, you know, I'm really grateful that you guys have given me the opportunity to talk about people that matter to me, um, artists that matter to me, artists that are influenced this project and and then to reflect on it in ways that give me pause as well so i want to say thank you to you nicole and amanda for thinking of me and giving me a platform to put out you know the importance of this project oh thank you so much it's been so inspiring talking to you we're we're so grateful that you've taken the time to come and share with us yeah and thank you so much for creating a space for artists that are severely underrepresented in the art community. It's really awesome and it's really necessary. We all got to lift each other up and grow together. Yeah, and I think it's shifting. I think it's our time, ladies, you know, as, as artists, yeah. as, as creative beings, as, you know, political figures, as cultural leaders. Um, we are stepping into our time. Yeah, amen. Where uh, can people find your work and the project that are interested in finding out more? So there's the the website for the exhibition and uh, movement, which is www.theblackwomanisgod.com. And then um, folks can just type my name in, Karen Seneferu, S-E-N-E-F-E-R-U. I'll show up. You can just Google me. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for for coming on the show and talking about all of the amazing things that you were involved in. Well, thank you, brilliant young ladies. <laughs> Keep shining light on yourselves and others. And same to you. And that's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of our episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. If you're listening to this episode via iTunes, we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with. And the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here. I'm excited for this episode. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be so good. Actually, this whole season, like every conversation at the end, I'm like, yes. Very good.